Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus answered them, see that no one takes you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of God. We thank him for it. We're going to stand and sing as we prepare to look at it together. With our Bibles open, let's just take a second again, especially now to ask the Lord's help. Father, we have loved being with your people and being with you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now as we come to look at this passage, the largely spoken words of the Lord Jesus, grant that we will hear your voice. Grant that every one of us will know you speaking to us. Grant that we will hear things that we need to hear in our personal lives today, far beyond the capability of any preacher. Speak, O Lord, we ask. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, last Sunday morning, we turned to Matthew chapter 7, right at the end of that famous section of Jesus preaching in the open air, and we thought about what we're building on, what it means to be founded on the rock, hearing and doing the word of God. And it's been lovely to see and hear the response of you to the simple ideas of how we might begin to improve our game in that, in that sense with the Saturday setup and the uh, Sunday seed time. Um, it's been lovely to hear people responding to that uh, through the week, and I hope that that will be a blessing and encouragement to, to, to all of us. Today we're turning to this passage in Matthew 24 and turning from what we're building on to what we're heading for and what it means to be faithful to the end. I, I take that title from verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But let's get our bearings in this passage and settle in. And what we see here in the context is that the Lord Jesus had spoken some words of withering judgment of the religious leaders of the day in chapter 23. You can glance at that if you wish to do so. And he finished chapter 23 by lamenting over Jerusalem's rejection of him. And the atmosphere at this point among the disciples, it must have been crackling. As Jesus said of Jerusalem in, in verse 38, 
of chapter 23. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you, see, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think if I had been among the disciples and had heard this stream of woes in chapter 23 and then this word of terrible warning, at the end, I think my head would have been reeling. And that may well be the case for the disciples as we look at them here. I wonder, have you ever been in a situation as I have when you felt the pace of change in life to be so fast and so all-consuming that you just long for some stability? You just long for some permanence. You long to find continuity, to discover something that can be relied upon not to change when everything else around you seems to be changing. I think that's how the disciples were feeling at the end of listening to Jesus in chapter 23. Because as we get to our chapter today, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now the temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The stones that the disciples were pointing out to Jesus were so large that to this day, archaeologists have trouble understanding how they could possibly have been transported. The smallest of the stones in the temple was between two and five tons. And the largest stone of them all, possibly the largest building stone in antiquity, is, I gather, 13.6 meters long, 4.6 meters thick, 3.3 meters high, and is estimated to weigh 570 tons. The builders of the temple used dry construction. There was no cement, no mortar between the stones. Nothing but their weight held them together, and there was plenty weight. That's what the disciples were drawing Jesus' attention to in verse 1. But to use a well-worn phrase, by this time, Jesus had left the building. That's a very significant thing at the beginning of verse 1. Jesus left the temple. With all the talk of desolation and judgment and of his physical absence and how they would not see him until he came again uh, in his return in power and glory, it looks as though the disciples were looking for some comfort. They were looking for some permanence, something that they could depend upon that wasn't going to change. And as they pointed out the buildings of the temple to the Lord Jesus, presumably they wanted Jesus to say something like, oh yes, oh yes, now you're talking. What amazing buildings, what vast stones. Well guys, whatever happens, We'll always have the temple, won't we? And if that's what they were hoping for, they're in for a further shock, verse 2. He answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 570 tons or not. They're going to drop like Lego. Can you imagine the stunned looks? Jewish temple religion had become a house built on sand, to use the Matthew 7 analogy. A house built on sand where the word of God was not heard, where the word of God was not applied, and the storm was coming, and its fall would be great when it came, and it came in AD 70. But this led to more questions. Verse 3, as 
Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age? All credit to the disciples. Do you notice here that they were building on the rock? They were listening to what the Lord Jesus said. They were taking on the words of the Lord Jesus, unsettling as they were. They were applying them to life. They accepted the fact that Jesus was going to go as he said he would at the end of chapter 3. And they believed that he was going to return in power and glory. And lots of people were going to say on that day, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So good on them for that. But it may be that what they wanted with this question in verse 3 was a kind of early warning system for the Lord's return to earth. A preset alarm so that they could definitely be ready for him. When will these things be? If he could give them a date in the diary, what will be the sign? Or at least a month's warning ahead of his return. Maybe then, however casually they lived, their spiritual lives, they could smarten themselves up and be ready for the Lord Jesus when he came back. Wouldn't that be great? There's still lots of Christians who, who would find that the ideal system for the Christian life. We want, as we see it, to, the, the best of both worlds. We want to have freedom to engage in everything that's available to us here and now, but still to be ready in the end for when the Lord Jesus comes. We don't want to muck that up. Because we know enough to know what rests on that. There's a bit in us that doesn't want the pressure of having to live close to him every day in the awareness that he will return to the world. But at the same time, we don't want to be caught out. We want to have caught up in our Bible reading and our prayer and our tidying the house, so to speak, if we know when he's coming or if we know when we're going to meet him. The thought of living our whole lives in fellowship with him, with him sounds a bit restrictive. Can you tell us when you're coming? Or at the very least, can you give us a, a clear sign in advance, an early warning? We'll be ready. But actually, the Lord Jesus does not want people living in a way that they would want to correct in order to be as they imagine it, ready for his return. And we can see from the answers that the Lord Jesus gives here that his focus is on us being all-time disciples, not just end-time disciples. We know that because he doesn't give them a date and he doesn't promise to give them the equivalent of a distinct theater bell five minutes before the curtain rises on his second coming. There's nothing like that. Rather, he speaks about how to endure throughout history. Whenever we are alive as his people on this planet and to the end with our faith and trust in him and so to be saved. And I thought as we start out together at HBC, this would be a helpful initiative to see what's ahead so that we can line up our lives individually and corporately around that. You might have noticed as I read it that in verses 4 to 8, Jesus is kind of speaking about what life is going to be like in the world in general. But then in verses 9 to 14, he zooms into a subset of the world, which is the church. And he focuses on what life is going to be like in the church. These are not two separate entities. We're on the planet. We're in the world. We live and breathe as part of these communities. We're affected by everything else that happens to everyone else. 
But at the same time, there are aspects to the life of the Christian believer that a person who doesn't know the Lord won't have any experience of. And that's what Jesus gets to in the second half. So what does it mean to be faithful to the end? I think three things. Number one, if you're going to be faithful to the end, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And straight away we can see that Jesus gives us, his followers, he gives us responsibility. Have a look at verse 4. Jesus answered them when, when they'd asked them, tell us when, tell us what the sign will be. Jesus answered them, see that, you take responsibility for this, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, this doesn't mean that these people, when they come, are claiming to be the Lord Jesus, though some of them do that, but that they claim to be the Messiah, at least in this sense, that they claim to be the one who has the answers. They claim to be the leader that everybody is looking for. And there were a string of nationalistic leaders around this time who raised, raised themselves up and drew a following. One, is ex, one example is, is a chap called Thudas, mentioned in Acts, fact, Acts chapter 5. And Luke records with damningly faint praise that Thudas was someone. Here's, here is his, uh, his great accolade. He claimed to be somebody. It's not a, very, not a very great thing to put in your tombstone, is it? He claimed to be somebody. And he managed to draw 400 supporters, but he was killed and those who followed him were dispersed and it all came to nothing. And there are others mentioned in Acts 5 who did that kind of thing. And throughout history and to this day, there's no shortage of people who believe that they know the way and they believe the way that it is in following them. There are these political leaders, there are these revolutionary Messiah-like figures, there are philosophical leaders like that. They wouldn't necessarily cast themselves in, in, in messianic biblical terms, but in the role. Follow me. I know what I'm doing. I stand opposed to everything else. Follow me. I'm a new voice. I'm a new face. I've got new ideas. Follow me. And today, millions of people hang on the every word of some of these folks. I just jotted down four names. Jordan Peterson. Greta Thunberg, or at the obviously darker end of the spectrum, Andrew Tate, and perhaps until recently, Russell Brand. Now, some of these have some very useful and interesting things to say. None of these claims to be Jesus, but they have colossal influence in the lives of their followers, and they actually all spend vast sums of money to grow their support, and they claim to have the answers in life and millions of people go after them. Now, the Lord Jesus warns us that this is going to be a deceptive age. He warns us that this is going to be a period of time between his return to glory after he rose from the dead and his coming again when there will be some very compelling voices speaking some very compelling and persuasive points. And we ought to be able to listen to them. We don't block our ears and run away. We ought to be able to listen to them and make our own minds about what they're saying. But at the definitive level, the Lord's people are not on the lookout for another leader. 
We're not looking for another voice. We're not looking for another way. But there has always been that vulnerability among the Lord's people to be led astray because the one we begin to be enamored with sometimes seems to be so like the Lord Jesus. In my daily Bible readings this week on Friday morning, I happened to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just listen to this. You don't have to turn to it, but just listen to this. This is much later than Jesus was speaking in Matthew 24. This is 2 Corinthians 11, and Paul says, I'm afraid, he's writing to a church, he says, I'm afraid that as the servant deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's warning the church. And then he says at the end of the chapter, verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11, he speaks of those who come like that, and he says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We're mad fools if we think that Satan always looks like the guy who has that whiff of sulfur and the little pointy ears and the forked tail and the, the trident in his hand. We're mad fools. If we think like that, he masquerades as an angel of light. He comes with compelling light and truth and answers and solutions. And he doesn't have to take us far away from the Lord Jesus. He doesn't have to take us in the opposite direction. He only needs to take us away from that sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that's what Jesus is warning people about. So in, in general in the world, there will be kind of messianic figures who will lead anyone astray but also this will happen in the church. Do you notice in our chapter this morning, Matthew 24, verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, I'll put that in its context in a moment, but suffice to say under this heading that this period of history in which we now live until the Lord Jesus comes again is one in which we need to keep, brothers and sisters, young and old, we need to keep our wits about us. There is this new thing called the influencer. And it's a very good name because influencers have influence. We need to keep our wits about us. We need to stay together in the fellowship of historic evangelical truth and not be picked off and led astray with perhaps sincerely held and perhaps well-intentioned but ultimately destructive deception. So that's the first thing Jesus said. If we're going to endure to the end, don't be deceived. Second thing, don't be distressed. What follows now is a list of events of global catastrophes which are deeply distressing. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Verse 7, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of 
the birth pains. Now, as we think of, think of some of these things, it is heartbreaking, isn't it? When we see, as we have in recent days, news of natural disasters, such as the Moroccan earthquake or the Libyan torrents. And we think of perhaps 20,000 people washed out to sea or washed underground. We cast our mind back to the Haiti earthquake where between 100,000 and 300,000 people lost their lives. Hasn't even been accurately detailed yet. Three million significantly adversely affected. Natural disasters. And it's unsettling, isn't it, when Kim Jong-un gets on his train and heads out of North Korea to meet Vladimir Putin in Russia. And the world watches and holds its breath. And news comes of an American uh, reconnaissance aircraft nearly shot down within the last 10 days. And the world watches and holds its breath. So what Jesus talks about here is very, very contemporary for us, as it always was. And the Lord Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't feel compassion or send help when we can to devastated regions. He's not saying that we shouldn't take an interest or be concerned about national and international political affairs. But he is plainly saying that if we are to endure to the end, we must learn not to be distressed, or to use his word, alarmed. That is, we're not to be alarmed to the point where we interpret these horrors as having a significance of their own. As though these things have are, are, are greater powers at work which will determine the future. That's what we're not to do. Rather, we're to feel the pain and shed the tears, but we're to know deep in our hearts, deep in our minds, that though these events take us by surprise, they do not take the Lord by surprise. And he tells us here, in Matthew 24, ahead of time, that periods of significant disorder and disaster are going to be a feature of life in the age until he comes. And we're not to be alarmed. It may panic us initially, but we're very quickly to gather ourselves and to remember as we sang this morning that we have a great big God, that he is almighty and he is sovereign over all of these things and he has not lost control. The fact is that when we see these very things, wars and uprisings and all the saber rattling that goes on and the earthquakes and the famines and the floods and the fires, the believer can look back at passages like this and rejoice that our Lord Jesus is Lord of history. He says in verse 6, this must take place. It's not as random and meaningless as it may appear. And though some believers may be inclined to see these things and start warning that it's the end of the world, Jesus says the opposite, verse 8. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. I remember as a, a wee boy being taken into Glasgow, shopping on a Saturday, and seeing a guy, a fairly classic guy with a sandwich, sandwich board and the close-set eyes, 
and the very cheery message, the end of the world draweth nigh. And he just walked up and down. I think it might have been Sucky Hall Street or Argyll Street. He just walked up and down all day, bringing cheer with his little message, the end of the world draweth nigh. And it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? That when you actually listen to what Jesus says here about these things, instead of, instead of trying to interpret everything that happens and say, this is it now, Jesus says it's the opposite of that. He says, this is the beginning of the birth pains. Just as there is absolutely no question, if you're in any doubt about whether someone is Jesus, if there's any doubt about it, it's not Jesus, you'll know when Jesus comes. So when we talk about the end of the world, there'll be no debate about it. Everybody will know when that day comes. So this idea of don't be deceived and don't be distressed, is a distinctively and uniquely Christian worldview. We're not apathetic to suffering. We're not fatalistic about the planet. We're enduring to the end with supreme confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gospel worldview is so refreshing in a world of panic about these things, about the looming environmental catastrophe and everything else, it's so refreshing, I think, to look at this this morning and hear Jesus saying, if we're going to build on the rock, we hear and do the word of Jesus. He says, don't be led astray. He says, don't be alarmed. And I don't know whether it was just because we've, came, we've come through the pandemic or other factors, but I have heard of young children in primary school who are worried sick about the future because they've been indoctrinated by a message that tells them that it's up to them to save the planet. Now, it's important for them to learn to take care of creation. That's our job, to encourage them about that. It's important for them to be aware of where we've gone wrong as humanity. But as believers, we can take that unbearable weight off the little one's shoulders as we point them to our Savior and Lord who is in complete control of everything. Because throughout all this, he says, don't be distressed. Don't be alarmed. Because all the while that this stuff is going on, the wars and the rumors of wars and the catastrophes and calamities, all the while, Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I love it that we have a Savior who says, don't be alarmed. Because so much religion operates by making people terrified and by keeping them terrified. That's how so much organized religion in the world keeps People adhering, they're terrified not to be there. And we have a Savior who says, don't be alarmed. He says, I don't want you going through your life petrified and terrified. There'll be plenty of that going on in the world. You don't lose your head when all around are losing theirs. How do we persevere to the end? Don't be deceived, don't be distressed. Now, this is a rubbish heading. Number three. Don't be disenamored. Oh, it's grim, isn't it? But it's a D. And I, I weaved in enamored earlier on just to kind of soften you up for it. It's 
Speak to Gordon if you want to know the Latin derivation. But amor is in there. Don't be disenamored. Don't fall out of love is the third thing Jesus says. Now, as we come to the second half of the chapter, there are still more potentially distressing forecasts to come in this final section. But I want us to see that the camera angle has changed. And the Lord Jesus isn't just telling us not to be distressed here. He shows us what being distressed might lead to. He shows us what being deceived might lead to. So here now is Jesus focusing in on his disciples who love and trust and follow him in every generation. And notice what he says, and brace yourselves. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. It's quite a recruiting skill, isn't it? For followers. If we were there as a focus group, we'd be saying to the Lord Jesus, listen, I know you mean well, but for goodness sake, dial it down. Nobody's going to follow you if you talk like that. But he's not afraid. He's not afraid of what it may mean. He's sovereign over history. The gospel, verse 14, is going to be preached in every part of the world. And here is Jesus establishing how the world will constantly and consistently react towards the gospel preaching church of Jesus Christ. As we make his good news known, because we are the Lord's people, we'll be hated by all nations for his name's sake. Now, some of you may have had that experience. Some of you may actually know personally, precisely what Jesus is speaking about here. Most of us don't yet. So this may be at the extreme end in our experience of rejection by the world that Jesus is speaking about here. But what is he doing? He's setting expectations. And he links it very closely, verse 9, to the fact that all this will happen to the Christian for his name's sake. Our Savior was rejected in this world and he's making it absolutely clear that those who love him, those who follow him, those who speak his word, they too will be rejected in this world. Verse 9 is strong stuff. Just imagine the disciples hoping for a bit of comfort from what Jesus said and he opens up with this, both barrels. What did Jesus know about the future that makes him so calm as he speaks the words of verse 9. As he says, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation. They're going to put you to death. You're going to be hated by all nations for my sake. Well, he knew what his father would accomplish as he was handed up to trouble. As he was rejected as he was brutally, judicially murdered, he knew what his father would accomplish by his own death for us on the cross. And he knew the joy that was set before him. And he knew it was a joy that he's going to share with all those who regardless of the cost in this world endure to the end. He knew, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are 
You, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as we look at verse 9 this morning, brothers and sisters, we've got to build on the rock here. We've got to take on what Jesus is saying. Otherwise, we will do what countless churches have done, done through history, and there is so much evidence of this today, we will completely capitulate to the world's agenda in order to try and gain the world's approval. We'll put all our energy into chasing after the world to make it like us. I don't need to give you examples. You can see it for yourself. But Jesus would save us a lot of wasted energy in that direction. But I don't want to dwell on that aspect of at uh, the moment. Rather, let's see the negative relational dynamic that Jesus describes in those who actually can't bear being rejected in the culture. That when it comes to standing with Jesus, they, they, they buckle under the pressure and they prefer to be safe in the world than safe on the rock. This is Jesus speaking about Many who began as his followers, verse 10. And then, in the midst of all this rejection of Christians in the world, then many will fall away or they will stumble or they will trip. And they will betray one another. And they will hate one another. Do you see how quickly the personal move away from Jesus becomes a relational disaster? So put verse 9 and 10 together in your mind, please. And see here that in other words, there are going to be millions of moments across history when the pressure on believers will be so great that they either stand with Jesus and his word and take what's coming from the world that despises him and them, or else they feel the pull of the world and draw the conclusion that lovely though the Lord Jesus is, he isn't worth the hassle he brings. He isn't worth the rejection that is experienced by those who are his followers. And so they turn their back on him and they turn their back on his people to the point of hatred and betrayal. And if I had time this morning, I could tell you stories of how that is happening in our country today. Verse 11, when that's going on, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This means that there will be, from within the Christian community, no shortage of voices speaking in support of those who are beginning to count the cost of building on the rock, those who are longing to fit in with the culture, There's going to be lots of voices from the wind, the, the voices of the false prophets, who are going to say, this is the right thing. You We've got to be taken seriously. We've got to be taken seriously by them. We've got to change what the Bible says to fit in with the culture. Otherwise, we'll become irrelevant. And as people feel like that, 
as they feel that colossal buckling pressure. And this is not academic because some of you are in work situations right now where you're having to do a lot of thinking and praying about that. And if we as elders can help you with that in any way, then please let us do so. Let us know how we can support you because this is, this is not easy. But Jesus says in the midst of all that, there are, there are going to be plenty of voices, many false prophets. They'll lead many astray with their message. That's the way to go. And then we come in verse 12 to the verse that gripped me above all as I read it. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, that is living against the word, living against the law of God. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I was so struck by the way Jesus stacks this up here. He says there is going to be a mass act of betrayal of the Lord and his people brought about by many who once called themselves Christians. So he expects this to be a colossal movement away from him. But they'll cave in because they didn't have the biblical and spiritual backbone to resist the culture. They'll be swept away by and with the world. But do you notice that at the crux of the problem, as Jesus warns about it, it's not just that their theology goes soft, it's that their love grows cold. They'll be disenamored. The love of our hearts for the Lord Jesus. The love of our hearts for the family that he has placed us in, the local church family. It can begin to cool. Initial enthusiasms can wane. And we don't always notice it happening because we might still be pursuing all the protocols and the patterns of the Christian life. But our hearts are no longer drawn out in love for the Lord Jesus. And therefore we begin to neglect to love him and we neglect to love his people. And chillingly, Jesus says that this will be the experience of many. It will be normative. That's what we're heading for. Can you bear it? That's what we're heading for. That's what's happening around us, perhaps even, God forbid, but perhaps even among us today. And this verse 12 provides an essential balance to what we looked at last week. We want to be a church that is founded on the rock. That is absolutely foundational to everything, obviously. But that, I don't know how you heard that last week, but it can sound dry and cerebral and emotionally shallow. And so this week we're reminded that the opposite is the case. A church that is founded on the rock and faithful to the end, we might say if we had a third crack at it, is fervent in its love for the Lord and for its people. There is a warmth about those who are building on the rock. There is a warm love for the Lord. It's not just that we are truth jockeys. It's not just that we're taking on board sound doctrine, though we have to do that if we're going to know him. But it's not just that. The effect that has is by the power of the Holy Spirit that it produces love for the Lord and love for his people. And if we become doctrinally accurate, 
but emotionally arid, then we're getting something wrong. A love for the Lord and a love for his people is a building on the rock thing. And says Jesus, it's when love grows cold that folks drift. And so the way not to be disenamored is to stay enamored with the Lord Jesus. So let's think and pray about this. When you do your seed time this afternoon or whatever you do it today, maybe pray that the Lord will keep our love for him warm. That we'll not be like those, the many, whose love grows cold. If the disciples were looking for a way to know when the last possible minute to get close to Jesus before he returned was, he can't help them. Because everything he says here, don't be deceived, don't be distressed, don't be disenamored. All of that keeps us and draws us safely near to him. You can't do this, any of these, without in isolation from him. And if they were looking for some signs of permanence, something that could be reliably, reliably de depended upon not to change when everything around them seemed to be deteriorating, it wasn't the temple with its vast stones. But here's what is permanent. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The end which, of course, is only the end of the age, this world. The end which is just the beginning. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you help us this morning as we've heard this word of the Lord Jesus? Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to align our lives personally and then as a result, corporately as a church family with him? We remember Paul writing about Demas in love with this present world who had deserted him. And yet we thank you that Paul was also able to say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. We pray that we will not be deceived and we will not be distressed and we will not be disenamored. We lift to you those of our brothers and sisters who this day may lay down their lives for the cause of the gospel. That you would fill their hearts with joy. And we pray that we may be among those who on that day receive the crown of everlasting life and the glories of your presence forever. For the glory of your name we ask it. Amen.